Desideratum is a Latin word. It means things that are desired as essential. This podcast celebrates storytelling as essential. I'm audiobook narrator Teresa Bakken, showcasing the talents of my author and narrator friends. I hope you'll hear an artist you love or find your next favorite wordsmith. This is episode 46 with John Gilstrap. We're going to talk about why his storytelling always includes teenagers and why his new heart-pounding book, Blue Fire, has so much heart. We begin with his real-life jumping-off point, the truth that there was a secure government location where our leaders would go if our country was ever in imminent danger. Yeah, there are two parts to the germ of the story, actually. One is the fact of the government relocation center. And the second is the members of Congress, the House and the Senate, each of them can bring only one staff member and no family. And I thought, wow, that's that would be a deal breaker. Yeah. And there, that's where Victoria came from, a single mom, a representative from West Virginia, sort of a prepper. And, um, and she says, no, you know, I don't, to hell with it. I'm going to go, I'm going to go stay with my family. I'd rather fry with my family than let them fry alone and me survive. So, and as it turns out, she doesn't fry, she survives. Yes. When I first started reading the book, she struck me as she keeps her head when all about her are losing theirs. Mm -hmm. She kind of steps into what's a vacuum of leadership and she earns respect one of my favorite things that she says about that, you know, kind of landing in this position of leadership, she tells one of her sons that people choose to listen to her. Mm -hmm. They choose to follow. And it seems kind of critical to me. Her leadership seems critical to this idea of choice. She's an outsider that comes into the the town of Ortho, West Virginia, which is a fictional place. And um, it's a very small town and she's the outsider and she just brings peace she there's two sides that are trying to hurt each other and she says stop stop you can't do this she has a very collective what's best for the community like she has an idea of of communal living and people supporting each other right it's a really powerful theme in the book I'm glad you brought up ortho because you kind of have a juxtaposition between this community of people that are trying to support one another, exist, and some characters call it Eden, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's another community not far away, Appleton, that is, you could equate with hell. Some of the descriptions of what's happening there and how things are just sort of spiraling out of control. It's, it's a real juxtaposition. It was very powerful to me, this idea of, of being safe and in community versus what can happen when there, when there is a vacuum of leadership. You know, I don't, I I don't write politics. I don't, I I write fiction. Um, But it doesn't take a strong imagination in the early days of COVID when people were hoarding toilet paper and hand sanitizer um, and diapers, as I understand it, I'm kind of past that in my life, but suppose there, it comes down to, uh, diabetic medication, or suppose it comes down to heart medication, the chemotherapy drugs, or stuff that, that means survival. We know how mean people got over toilet paper, 
how mean are people going to get when they're really hungry or when the baby needs formula? Right. And you really make it clear in this post-nuclear war that hard skills, carpentry, hunting, these are essential. And also one of the characters has a topographical map, which would be very valuable to know how to read and use a topographical map. And so I wondered if you are a woodsy, outdoorsy kind of guy, that these are skill sets that you have that you brought to these characters. Well, I used to be. And then and then I became a suburbanite like everybody else, right? And so so I lost a lot of that, but now I'm in the process, actually. Uh, this week, I move out to West Virginia, um, where we have a lot of land, and, and I'm going to become a farmer again and a fun farm. But I would like to, to grow my own vegetables and know how to do that. And not as subsistence. I'm not going off the grid. I like Netflix too much. But um, you know, I, I think it's important to have those skills, if only because they're so, for me, they're very satisfying to be outside and, and, and get dirty and let, and have a dog that's allowed to do dog stuff running through the woods instead of always, you know, being on a leash. Yes. I think all of these characters have a real, your protagonist and this, and her sons have a very, a respect for nature. They feel like survivalists, but you also get the sense that they enjoy being under the stars. I think there's a scene where one of the sons is walking and he's actually appreciating the fact that there's no light pollution. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no sound of any engine or he's just absorbed in the peace of being outside at night. Well, yeah, and, uh, and notwithstanding the death and destruction, which is actually is never on the page. You know, I, I want to emphasize that. Yeah. This is not about zombies and it's not about people with their flesh melting. And it's not about, it's actually the, the flip side, you know, Presumably hundreds of millions of people have been killed in these attacks, but hundreds of millions of people still survive. And one of the the ideas that propelled me to write this is you hear a lot about preppers, so-called preppers, and it's usually used as a pejorative, and I don't see it that way at all. But the most of the prepping stuff that I have read, it stops at the door of your bunker. I have mine. I have my stuff. I'm going to feed my family and all that. Well, okay, that's fine. But sooner or later, there's some elements of society continue to exist and you're going to have to interact with them. Right. And where this series picks up with Victoria is at that point where you've got terrified people who are trying to to make the best of a terrible situation. And all they really need is hope and leadership. Let's pause right here and listen to a scene from the book. What you're about to hear is from Chapter 1, when one of Victoria's sons sounds an alarm for blue fire. It's their community's code for imminent danger. This is from Blue Fire, written by John Gilstrap, produced by Recorded Books, and read by narrator Kate Forbes. Luke struggled to catch his breath as he leaned over his saddle horn. People in boats, he said. Lots of them, all with guns. They're coming this way. What does a lot mean? McCrae asked. I didn't count, Luke replied with an adolescent flash of duh. Maybe fifty? How many boats? 
Victoria asked. I didn't count those either. Ten, maybe? George Simmons, once the owner of Simmons Gas and Goodies, stepped forward. Were the boats under power? I don't think so. I didn't hear any motor noise. I think they were riding the current. Why is this an emergency? Victoria asked. She thought she probably knew, but she wanted to hear it from her son. All the guns, he said, and the way they looked at me. They looked at you? Caleb asked. He was incapable of speaking to his little brother without a silent, you idiot, attached to the end. How close were you? I was on the shore, Luke replied. Victoria knew from his tone that he'd been doing something he shouldn't have, but she didn't want to press him on it now. I thought you were hunting, Caleb said. Do you want to hear or not? Boys. This from Joey Abbott, whose pawn shop had once been a major form of credit for locals, back when paper money had value. For God's sake, are we being invaded or aren't we? One of them pointed a rifle at me, Luke said. McRae seemed to inflate with anger. Did he fire on you? No, sir, but I think he wanted to scare me. Looks like it worked, Caleb said. Up yours. Stop. Victoria was forever amazed by her son's cluelessness about how interactions like that made them look small in the eyes of others. So much for the departure of boyishness. How far out are they? McRae asked. Luke shook his head. I don't know. A ten-minute gallop. One mile, Simmons said. Maybe two. That's not much time, McRae said. We need to take this seriously. It could mean nothing or it could mean everything. He raised his voice to address the crowd. Most of you know where to go. If you don't, find some cover and get behind it. Snipers, don't be trigger happy, but be sure and accurate. At those words, five of the assembled residents, the Emerson boys included, peeled off and trotted off to their snipers' nests. The others headed off to their assigned defensive stations. As head of town security, by default rather than by choice, McRae had trained every resident older than 14, older than 12 in the cases of some of the kids who wandered in from the country and were skilled shooters, always to fight from defended positions. Where is Paul? Victoria asked, referring to First Sergeant Copley, the other half of Victoria's security team on the night the world ended. He was helping in Churchtown last I heard, McRae said. It turned out that Paul Copley was damn near a master carpenter. With a constant influx of new people and the approach of winter, the need for housing had become critical. Churchtown was an eight-acre plot of land surrounding the Church of the Redeemer, about a mile down the road, on which Copley was overseeing the construction of at least twenty cabins. As if on cue, the fast-approaching clatter of hooves drew their attention that direction, 
in time to see First Sergeant Copley at a dead gallop, ahead of a line of others on bicycles, racing in to respond to the whistles. Copley pulled his horse to a stop and dismounted a few yards away. Everybody to your assigned stations, McRae yelled. Move quickly. We don't have much time. You did a great job with, I felt like there were children or teenagers, teenagers that played really important character roles in this story. Mm-hmm. They do what we kind of recognize as typical teenage behavior, but they also have been kind of forced to be adults in some way. They're, um, so like we, we still recognize them kind of pushing back from their parents and authority and they form little alliances. They're susceptible to bullying. They can go along with the pack. But we also see how the experience of this change in society, this nuclear war that stripped away all of society, that's really changed them. And I just wonder, John, where did you get the insight for the teenagers in this story? Well, I was one at one point, and, and I, raised, I raised one. Um, quite honestly, it's the part of writing that I don't understand at all, even though it's what I do. You climb into a, a somebody's headspace and, and look around. I guess I just thought that you, a lot of the fear, a lot of the emotion of the story, what you think characters are going to be feeling when something like this is happening in this world that you've created, you express a lot of that through teenagers, I thought. Like the adults are, the adults are fully fleshed out, but a lot of the insecurity of it, I thought was there were a lot of youth in this on all sides, you know, in all of the different situations. That has long been a hallmark of what I write, quite honestly. I don't, I don't write YA fiction, young adult fiction. Um, but a lot of young adults are in my work because I, I think that is the, that's a perfect way to express moral dilemmas and change and hidden honesty. Yes. You know what I mean? I mean that's, so there's something about adolescence to into the teen years that is a lot of fun to write about because it's such an, uh, a busy slate, a tumultuous area for everybody. It was so relatable. You said it so beautifully. I think that those are years where everything is right at the surface and it can go a lot of different ways. You are susceptible to alliances that maybe, maybe when you're when your core morality is better formed, you would realize, oh, that's not an alliance I should make. Mm-hmm. Or there are, as one gets older, um, the decisions you would make as a teenager based on your heart because it's the right thing to do get tempered by the practicality of what I put at risk if I do the right thing, right? So it, it, it's, I think a lot of this does play out in the book. I hope it plays out in the book. And that's what makes it so much fun to write. Yes. It was very fun to read. One of my favorite moments between teenager and parent is Victor- one of Victoria's sons. It's Luke. Um, he, he places his hands on his hips and he shifts his weight. And she says, her character says, it's, it's exactly how his father would have done it. And I think she even questions out loud, or maybe she says it in her mind, can mannerisms be hereditary? I, I do think that that's the case. There are According to my wife, my dad passed away quite some time ago, but when I'm concentrating, apparently I will do things with my hands and the way I, I support my head or 
the way I gesture that she said is a hundred percent your father. Mm. And of course it's not, not something one practices, but I, I think it's out there. And I think it's also important in kind of behind, behind the scenes of writing. I think moments like that establish the closeness between parent and child that even though at right at that point, they're not getting along very well, but very clearly she adores him and very clearly he adores her. I like that about Victoria, that moment. I also like her, um, the way she de-escalates things. At one point she lowers her voice to be heard. So she has, she has these techniques with dealing with people and de-escalation or anger management. Or Where does that come from for you? Where did you get these techniques that she's loaded with? Well, truthfully, that's all me. I, I have long done that. You know, I was, I was, I mentioned I was in the emergency response business for a long time. And I learned from my mentors that when people are yelling, that's the time to speak softly. Mm. If not, if only because you're, you're modeling what you want them to do. And also if you want to win, you can't rise to the bait in that particular interchange. Luke is deliberately baiting her. Yes. And she just doesn't go for it. I've created a lot of characters. I've created hundreds, maybe thousands of characters over the last 25 years. But she is really right at the top. She's one of my favorites. The last thing I have, you've been so generous. I feel like I could talk to you about these characters all day. I'd like to ask the authors that spend time with me, for you, if you had to explain to somebody, these are my essential things, this is what's most important, what would you say? Well, first and foremost, family. Nothing's worth anything to me without that. Well, that's interesting because that's how your character, that's how Victoria talks about the first circle. Most important is family. Mm -hmm. I just, I love that your story, and you mentioned working in, I think it's explosives, right? It was explosive safety. Right, yeah. That these things helped create the, the storyteller that you've become. It's an interesting path. Uh, that kind of consulting work into this writing. This has occurred to me a number of times because I've been really blessed in, in terms of my career. My first book, Nathan's Run in 1996, just went off like a rocket ship. So it's, it's, I've, I've had nothing but a great ride in this business. But when I think back on firefighting and explosives and hazardous waste and hazardous materials and nerve agents and you know nuclear war plans and all that stuff back when I was, I was in that business. It never occurred to me at the time that what I was doing was training to be a thriller writer. But it's, it is kind of, it's weird in retrospect, it feels like on-the-job training. Yeah, it is always interesting to look back, isn't it? That led to that, led to that, led to that. Mm-hmm. Was there a particular serendipity that started Nathan's run? Actually, there was. There, there, there's two levels of that. One, I owned a business, I owned a consulting firm, safety and, and environmental consulting firm. And I was named to be the head of the county's budget integration committee, I think is what it was called. And the very first thing I saw, very first place I visited was the juvenile detention center. And the very first thing I saw was these warehouse kids all wearing orange uniforms. And there was one boy all by himself. And he was maybe 11 or 12 years old. And he looked terrified. And I talked to the the guy who ran it, who was a very nice man. Um, you're an adult when you're 18 in Virginia. So if you're 17 and you commit a crime, you go to the juvenile detention center. If you're 12 and you commit a crime, you go to the juvenile detention center. It's a big range. 
how terrifying must that be? So this got the, the juices flowing and, and that was the seed for Nathan's Run. Now you throw in a trip across Montana in a rental car where the radio didn't work. Again, we're talking mid nineties. And I had nothing else to do. And during that eight hour drive, the story came together in my head. It took me four months to write it. That's amazing. Yeah, it just, it just flew out. Oh yeah, serendipity, definitely serendipity. We'll close the episode right there with that story of serendipity. Thanks to Anne at Kensington Books for introducing me to John. Kensington generously provides the discount code DP20 to save 20% across their incredible library. Just enter DP20 at checkout at kensingtonbooks.com. Also, look for the audiobook on Libro FM for Blue Fire, which is book two in the Victoria Emerson series. You will also find John's other successful novels. His first, he mentioned, was Nathan's Run. And of course, his Jonathan Graves series is in audiobook format too. I'll put the Desideratum podcast affiliate link with Libro FM in the show notes and on the link tree on all our social media accounts. Using the affiliate link supports the podcast and a local bookstore of your choice. This has been episode 46. As always, thank you for listening. <laughs>